Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1 of that chapter. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 1004. Been blessed this morning just with a rich tapestry of worship from our children singing. Just cannot help but smile when we see them. New members joining, baby baptized, choir leading us, testimony from Alex. It's a good day to be saved by grace. And I trust that as we work through this passage together this morning, that grace will become real and clear to us in in new and, and fresh ways. So let's read together from Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor, when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that the Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's stand together and prepare our hearts to hear from him singing how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Father, we are a people who need your grace. We need the sweet name of Jesus to drive away fear, to give us rest, to be our shield and our hiding place. We thank you that you have provided him for us, that he is ours and we are his. Would you come now and teach us of this grace from this section of your word to your own honor and to your own glory. I pray you would rule and overrule the words of my lips, that my sin and folly would be forgotten, and that your word 
and your glory would be lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, what was that passage about? (laughs) You know, one of those passages, you sit down and you read it. And believe me, when you sit down to prepare to preach on it, it's no different. You read it, you read it again, you read it a third time, and you think, if I ask you to summarize it right now, what on earth would you say? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a rich, uh, complex passage. And yet, the message that comes from it is really Gospel 101. And that's really, this sermon is old school in a sense, because it's a sermon that focuses upon the Gospel 101. The Bible makes very clear to us that the single most important issue all of us face is the eternal issue addressed in this passage. The eternal question, am I fit? Are you fit? Are we able to stand before God and know that we can make it into heaven? That is the very practical and earnest question that this passage addresses. And I hope as we work our way through it that if these things are new to you, then the importance and passion of Jesus will become clear. If these things are not new to you, I pray that this passage will bring refreshing words to your soul. In many ways, this passage is like a divine reality check. You're familiar with reality checks that hit you from time to time. Um, Some of them are big, some of them are small. I recently had one where I'm just one of those people who's really not photogenic at all. I don't know if you are. You may be one of these people who kind of, uh, you know, a photo comes and you look good. But whenever a photo is about to be taken, I just pull a weird face, right? And I don't mean to. I just kind of do. It's this half smile that sort of looks like I'm in pain, right? Um, I'll never forget. I don't know if Catherine Brunner's here. When we took photos for the Harvest website, we took literally over 100 of me to get a good one. We took three of her, and they were all great, okay? And I was just like, wow. And then I said to a friend the other day, Man, I think I'm better looking in real life, right? <laughs> and then the reality check came when this dear friend said, Ah, mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a bummer. <laughs> reality check for my soul in a good and happy and, and healthy way. That's a small thing. I've also had uh, bigger moments. I remember one day um, stressing in my office over a sermon that I was trying to prepare when the phone call came that my grandfather had, had passed away, my, my pops had, had died. And I just remember that the urgency of that moment vanished into the light of eternity, that the stress I had utterly disintegrated under the weight of the world that was to come. A reality check, there are more important things in life. And that's what this passage is designed to be. It's designed to be a, a reality check for us from God, a divine reality check to to stop us in our tracks. See, at this church, we talk a lot about how the gospel impacts all of life. The gospel impacts every single area of our lives, and it does. Our vision as a church is thy kingdom come. When we talk about that, we have in mind this idea that we want to see in life here today a glimpse of heaven itself as the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms us as it transforms our church and our culture and our city and our world all to the glory of God. We believe that the transforming of the power of the gospel impacts our souls in such a way that it has a ripple effect into every area of our lives so that our relationships and our marriages and our parenting and our work and our finances and our health is, is never the same again because we have met with Jesus. 
And it's important to emphasize that, and we will continue to keep on emphasizing the the daily implications, the practical realities that flow from the gospel of Jesus. But as we do this, we dare not think that the primary benefit of the gospel is self-improvement for today. The primary benefit of the gospel is not self-improvement for today. The primary benefit of the gospel is salvation for eternity. I recently came across um, a book in Barnes & Noble, 50 Self-Help Classics, combined by Tom Butler Bowden. And he lists the Bible alongside works such as How to Win Friends and Influence People, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Men Are from Mars, Women Are from Venus. And even then, he only lists the Bible in sixth place, right? I don't know what angered me more, the fact that it was in the list or the fact that it was in sixth. Um, as if God has put together his best advice, stuck it in the Bible, packaged it nicely, and put it on the shelves of Barnes & Noble. We need to understand, we need this reality check to see your greatest need this morning is not your distance place. That is a very important thing, but it is not the main thing. Your greatest need this morning is not your wayward child. That is a very important thing, but it is not the main thing. Your greatest need this morning is not your difficult colleague or the meeting you have at work. Those things are very important, but they are not the main thing. Your greatest need this morning is not your material welfare or your physical health. Those things are important, but they are not the main thing. Why? Because the urgency of all these things vanishes in the light of eternity, utterly disintegrates under the weight of the world that is to come. The main thing is how can we, a people who have rebelled against God, stand before him and be sure that we'll make it in to heaven. This is the eternal issue, and we need to confront it. We need to confront the morbidity of it in order to see the beauty of the passage we're looking at today. So let's look at this passage. Gospel 101. You can be sure that you can make it to heaven. You can stand before God because you have a priest who represents you. We're going to look at what Jesus did for you and what Jesus does for you. What Jesus did for you in the past and what Jesus does for you in the present. But before we do that, um, let's dive in together and try and make sense of the larger context of this passage. It's definitely a complicated one, and it's one of those texts that is, makes a really strong argument for why the majority of uh, your preaching and the majority of your series should be going uh, through a book from beginning to end, because there's absolutely no way that you would pick this passage to preach on. If you're doing a one-off sermon, you know, as I prepared this uh, series on Hebrews, some passages that I was ready and excited to preach on, others were kind of like, oh. Right? This, is, this is definitely one of those. But it's, it's rich and it's important. So let's try and uh, summarize it uh, together. It basically breaks down into three sections. Three sections. First of all, in verses 1 through 10, where we read that there are two lines or two orders of priests. Verses 1 through 10. Then verses 11 through 14 tell us that there are limits on the old line of priests. Limits on the old order of priests. Then verses 15 through 28 tell us about the superiority of the new line. So the chapter breaks down like this. There's two lines of priests, an old line and a new line. There are limits on the old line and the new line is superior. Let's look at each of those headings briefly together. First of all, there are two lines of priests, old and new, verses 1 through 10. Imagine it this way. All sorts of names are thrown out to us in this passage, but imagine it this way. It's basically like a family tree, 
the old line of priests is a family tree, and it begins with Abraham, who has Isaac, who has Jacob, who has Levi, another man who is mentioned here. Levi's great-grandson, Aaron, another man that is mentioned in this text. And so the old line of priests is basically a family tree that begins with Aaron, uh, begins with Abraham, works its way through Levi and Aaron, down to all the other priests that we have spoken about. So all the priests that we've uh, discussed so far in Hebrews come from this line or this order of priests. They are descended from Abraham and his descendants. Now in verse 1, we're introduced to a new line, a new line that comes through Melchizedek. Now this takes us back to Genesis 14, where an alliance of kings attacks Sodom and her neighbors, and they uh, conquer them, and they overtake them, and they um, take away their their plunder, and they take away uh, captives, including Abraham's nephew, Lot. Abraham finds out about this and he goes off in pursuit of the invaders. He overtakes them and then he conquers them in the night and he uh, takes back all the plunder and he uh, saves all the captives, including his own nephew. Then when he is on his way back from this military victory, he is met by this figure, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who we read, is two things. First of all, he is a king. His name means king of righteousness. He is king over a place called Salem, which means peace. So he is a king of righteousness and peace. As a king, it is his job to represent God to the people. But not only is he a king, we read that he is also a priest, priest of most high God. So yes, he is a king in that he represents God to the people, but he is also a priest in that he represents the people to God. Now, he's a very enigmatic figure. He gets no introduction in Genesis, no genealogy, which is very unusual. You know, in the Old Testament, when you're reading along, it will introduce someone and it will say, so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. And then later, it will tell you about his descendants. So-and-so gave birth to so-and-so. And on these lists go for chapters and chapters at a time. Not so with Melchizedek. He just appears and then disappears. We get no genealogy of him. Nothing is said of his parentage, nothing is said of his progeny, nothing is said about his birth or his death. From the literary perspective, he has no beginning and no end. A a king-priest with no beginning and no end. Remember that. It's going to be important in a second. And this new line of priests, Melchizedek's line, we read in verses 1 to 10, is superior to the old line. We've got these two lines. Abraham's line, Melchizedek's line. Melchizedek's line is superior because he is superior to Abraham. How do we know that? Because Melchizedek is the one who blesses Abraham. And Abraham is the one who tithes to Melchizedek. And obviously it is the superior who blesses the inferior and the inferior who tithes to the superior. So that's the key idea in verses 1 through 10. Two lines of priests. Old one beginning with Abraham. New one beginning with this king priest without a beginning, without an end, Melchizedek. Okay, verses 11 through 14 then talks about the limits of the old line, the failures almost of the old line, in that this old line of priests, Abraham, Levi, Aaron, all these guys, did not provide perfect access to God. They taught the people that they needed sacrifice, but they did not and could not provide the sacrifice that was needed. And so they were limited in how much they were able to provide access to the Lord. Put simply, bottom line, this old priestly order was unable to save the people. Unable to save the people. 
God designed it that the needed sacrifice would not come from this old line, but would come from a new line. A priest who, like Melchizedek, would be a king representing God to the people. Would also be a priest representing the people before God. Who would have, like Melchizedek, no beginning and no end. Not from the literary perspective, but literally, no beginning and no end. A priest called Jesus. A priest called Jesus. And so we get the superiority of his uh, line described in verses 15 then through 28. Ideas introduced uh, for us and then really three reasons are given why Jesus' priesthood is so superior. First of all, unlike the old line, Jesus was confirmed in office by oath of God. Secondly, Jesus is immortal, whereas the priests of the old line died one by one. Thirdly, Jesus is sinful, whereas sinless... Whoa, that's a big mistake. (laughs) Jesus is sinless, whereas the priests of the old line had been sinful, having to present offerings for their own cleansing before they could uh, present sacrifices for the sins of the people. Okay, summary. You ready? The limits of the old line meant that their sacrificial service had to be repeated constantly because it was never truly effective. But in Jesus, the new line, we have the perfect sacrifice. By the single sacrifice of himself, he has dealt with people's sin forever. That's an outline of Hebrews 7. Clear as mud? Excellent. (laughs) Amidst this rich theology, then, let's pick out the uh, real application points that this chapter drives toward. What point is this passage trying to make? Two things. It's trying to highlight, first of all, what Jesus did for you. Uh, in the past, and then secondly, what Jesus does for you in the present. So let's look first then at what Jesus did for you. And we look at this in verse 27. Reading, starting in verse 26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. When he, when he offered up himself. What Jesus did for you in the past was sacrifice himself. Jesus doesn't offer a daily sacrifice, a weekly sacrifice, a monthly sacrifice, a yearly sacrifice. Why? Because he presented the one-time perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world upon the cross. That is what the cross is. It is the sacrifice for our sins. A perfect sacrifice, a precious sacrifice, a satisfying sacrifice, so effective that it never needs to be repeated again. It's permanently valid, and he did this on the cross. Now, the reason all that theology and context was so important to cover is that we need to grasp something of it in order to realize how shocking this idea would be to the original readers. This idea that there's no more sacrifice needed because Jesus has come, it would be a shocking idea. They'd lived their entire lives working through the priests as they approached God, going through and obeying all the ceremonial laws that they might approach God and find that their sins were forgiven. So for the writer to come up and say, all that now done away with, because Jesus has provided the one sacrifice we need, would be a shocking idea to them culturally. A shocking idea. As hard as if someone was to say to you, um, you know, you should do away with all the the cultural trappings of Christianity, and and that is how we are now to follow God. A hard idea for them to get to grips with. It would have been shocking like um, 
like a newsflash is designed to be. That's what this text is. It's a reality check. It's a newsflash. I may have shared with you before, but I'll never forget sitting, watching a Clemson football game uh, with a Clemson grad. There was just a few minutes to go, and Clemson were up by two points, and that's a very uncertain number of points to be up by in a football game. And uh, right near the end of the game, ABC decided, fitting time, to interrupt our broadcast without important announcements. Um, the game went off, up flashed the news, uh, the news scene, and they informed us that Judge Rehnquist had, had passed away. Important news, um, not nearly important enough for my Clemson grad friend. Um, some colorful language followed as we uh, waited for the game to restart. Um, but we get, you know, we get news flashes when there's important information, information that we need to know. Perhaps think uh, more relevantly about uh, severe weather. When we get severe weather, tornadoes, hurricanes, that sort of thing coming to our area, uh, our programs will be interrupted and we'll get this information, information that we need to know, information that we need to act upon, information that might even save our lives. That's what's happening in Hebrews 7. A newsflash is being given to uh, the original readers saying, all these things you relied upon, you can't rely upon them anymore. If you, uh, you must act upon this news uh, for the sake of your very life that the one sacrifice you need has been made in Jesus. And this should strike us the same way. It's a newsflash for us that should just break through the walls of the sanctuary and into our very dark corners of our souls that we are a people who need a saviour. We are a people who don't have our stuff together. We are a people who sin and fail and fall every day in many ways. We are a people who who need forgiveness. And this forgiveness has been provided for us in Jesus. His one-time sacrifice on the cross is enough. It is effective for our salvation. We can approach him and say, Lord, I have rebelled against you. I wander far from you. Would you forgive me because of Jesus? And he will. A reality check assuring us that we can stand before God. We can make it to heaven because of what Jesus did for you. Sacrificing himself on your behalf. So that all the things that might disqualify you, your shame, your guilt, have been swept away by him. Secondly, then, we've seen what Jesus did for you, sacrifice himself. Let's look at what Jesus does for you. Present tense, verse 25. Consequently, in light of all that we've read, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does Jesus do? He always lives to make intercession for you. What does this mean? It means... Jesus is alive forevermore, and he lives that he might pray for you. He lives at the right hand of God where his finished work is on display, and he stands there to pray for you, for you personally, for you individually, for you in your present circumstances, for you wherever you find yourself in life just now. He is not a God who is far and distant, who makes this sort of grandiose sacrifice and then separates himself from us once more. He is a God who has gladly paid the sacrifice and now ministers to us in an intimate, personal way by praying to the Father on our behalf. 
What does this mean? Well, what does he pray for? That's a good question. Let's look at three things uh, together uh, in closing. Three practical applications as to why this idea that Jesus prays for us should be such an encouragement. First of all, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Where we read, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus lives to pray for you, and he prays for your forgiveness. He prays for your forgiveness before the Father. It seems like there are two types of people, uh, or two objections maybe, when it comes to sin. The first type is those who, who don't take sin seriously enough, and they say, look, I get that nobody's perfect, but I'm, I'm not really sinful. That's a bit extravagant. That's a bit overboard. We're all doing our best, and God will, I'm sure, be happy with us because, you know, we all, we all tried hard. The other category of people are the category, the absolute opposite of that, who are so conscious of their own sin, so aware of their failings, so broken by their failings that they feel God could never forgive them. There are two types of people, one who doesn't take sin seriously enough, another who can't see anything but their sin. And the solution to both of those is Jesus. The solution to both of those is Jesus and seeing him praying for your forgiveness. On the one hand, if your sin isn't that serious, why is there a cross? You know, God was not playing when he crucified his son. There was a, a payment that had to be met and he paid it in full. But secondly, if you feel you can't be forgiven, do you think the Lord is not satisfied with the cross? Does he require more that your sins might be forgiven? No, for all of us, whatever our struggles with our sin may be, we can look to see Jesus in heaven praying for us, praying for our forgiveness, being assured of our pardon, not because we have done anything in of ourselves, but because Jesus has sacrificed and now asked the Father on our behalf that we might be forgiven. If you struggle with guilt, if you struggle with shame, this is a beautiful truth. As you pray for forgiveness, you echo and join in harmony with Jesus himself, who prays that your guilt will be taken away. Encouraging thought for us this morning. Secondly, what does Jesus pray for? Let's turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, verse 32, start in verse 31 maybe. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, Jesus said that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, and, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus prays for us for forgiveness. Jesus also prays, we know from this text and, and others, for our protection, for our perseverance. Jesus prays for our perseverance. In the scriptures, this is a really helpful idea to me. Our perseverance our ability to make it in this life is dependent not upon us, but upon Jesus. So if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle just with making it through this life, if you just struggle to get by on a day-by-day basis, I want you to be encouraged that the power to persevere is located in Christ's grace to you, not in your ability to make it. So often in life, you sort of feel like you're kind of walking down the balance beam. You know that feeling? You're walking along, you're going one foot in front of the other, carefully, slowly, but at any moment you might fall off either side. The reality is, 
Jesus prays for your perseverance. You are not on a balance beam. You are on a platform of his grace that extends from shore to shore, but you cannot fall off. Underneath us are the everlasting arms. Jesus prays for your perseverance. He prays for your protection. He prays that you will have the grace that you need to make it through. If you believe in him and are struggling to make it, that's an encouraging, encouraging idea. It's not just that, I love this, that heaven is kept for you. It's that you are kept for heaven. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, for unbelieving hearts, he prays forgiveness. For our believing hearts, he prays perseverance or protection. Thirdly and lastly, this is by no means an exhaustive list. We could look at many things, but... Thirdly and lastly for today, John 17, where he prays something for us corporately as a community. John 17. This, of course, is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Interesting division in that the first few verses, verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. Verses uh, 6 through 19, he then prays for his disciples. And then towards the end of the chapter, he turns to pray for his church, praying for his uh, church. And let's look at that idea together this morning. Verse 20, I do not ask for those, these only, that is, his disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, praying for the church, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We have a word of forgiveness, a prayer of forgiveness for unbelieving hearts, a prayer of perseverance for our uh, believing hearts, and then a prayer for unity for us as a community. For us as the church gathered, Jesus prays, prays that we might be united. And is that not a great word for us in this season of our church's life? A prayer for unity, that we would be on the same page, the same gospel page, that we would have one another's back, that we would be loyal to each other, that we would be for each other as we are about this life together. Jesus praying that we might be as one, and it's so important that we are. It's very interesting how the passage ends. See how it ends? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, Jesus says, the unity of God's people is necessary for the evangelization of the world. In order for the world to believe that you have sent me, they need to look upon a church that is united. They will know you are Christians. How? By your love. That we are, are, Jesus is is praying that we would be a people of one mind, one heart, one accord. A people who are together and in the mess of life together. And that's a really helpful prayer because, do you know what? That's not easy. Um, Even on the level of personality, that's not easy. We have a large congregation. I am difficult and obnoxious. You are difficult. Sometimes you're obnoxious too. It's not that easy to get along. Why can't we all just get along? Because we don't want to. And so isn't it an encouragement for us, especially during this season of our church's life, that we have Jesus in the heavens themselves praying for us. Praying that we'd be united. Praise for forgiveness. Praise for perseverance. Praise for unity. How can you be sure that if you die, you can stand before God and enter heaven? Because Jesus has sacrificed for you, and now he prays for you. Heaven will be kept for you. You will be kept for heaven. A reality check that our souls need. I may not be photogenic. I, I may not even be that good looking in real life. 
But this word, this word is the word my soul needs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, this word that speaks of sacrifice and intercession, this word that guarantees our sins are forgiven and that you pray for us so that on the one hand, heaven is kept for us and on the other hand, we are kept for it. We can be assured of your grace because Jesus is our high priest in the new line of Melchizedek. We thank you for this truth and pray that it would seep down into our souls, that we might believe it and experience it in all its richness and in all its fullness. Lord, we recognize that the ultimate thing is our ability to stand before you and enter heaven. And so we praise you for the grace that has enabled us to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.